Hey gang, welcome to episode 202 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro studio in Los Angeles, aka the kitchen table. This week's episode is brought to you by listeners like you. With a little help from our friends at Thymeli Arts who provide us with office space. Thank you, John. We've been making good use of it of late. Our guest this week on the show is Robin Arnott, CEO of Andromeda, which is a new company focused on, you could call it games for personal growth. You can check them out at Inter Andromeda uh, and see what they're doing. Uh, so Emergent Entertainment Technologies for Healing and Self-Actualization is the tagline. Um, Robin and I and his girlfriend Chantel had a little adventure on Monday. And indeed, you know, my, my week didn't get better than this. This was really good. And so it was like a high bar. And, you know, sometimes you hope that the week's going to get even better from whatever Monday was. Nah. Monday was the highlight of the week. This conversation was the highlight of the week. We started off uh, in downtown LA at the Whole Foods, having breakfast, catching up a little bit. You'll hear about why we were catching up uh, as the episode goes on. And then we were going to try and record at the Airbnb they were staying at. That didn't work out. So um, we just drove. We drove up into the Hollywood Hills where uh, one of one of the partners uh, lives. And uh, we had this kind of trek across Los Angeles. Um, Robin operated the equipment because he's got sound skills. Uh, indeed, that's like core to like what he does. And um, yeah, it was it was this trek. It was this journey. Uh, and this is one of those this is one of those no proscenium conversations, <laughs> a.k.a. an episode only Kent by can love. No, um, <laughs> we do. We give a shout out to Kent at a certain point. Um, we get philosophical, without a doubt. Uh, in fact, towards the back end of this, once we're finally up in the hills, uh, we, we really just crack in on the philosophy. So um, get ready, because we're going to go there. But before we go there, let's check in with a little bit of the business of the week. Let's check in on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash NoPristinium is um, our Steadiest source of income these days. Hi, we're freelance now. We're terrified. Uh, it's a good kind of terrified. Uh, well, it would be a good kind of terrified, but that's 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 another story. We'll get to that on the back end of the show. Um, I want to thank our latest backers, Paul F. and Kelly G. Uh, we are up to 240 backers uh, and $1,400. So we're closing in on the $1,500 marker which is when we start squirreling money away uh, as a transport fund uh, for the team. Not for me, for the team. Uh, the whole thing is the transport fund for me. The whole thing is the, the pay the rent fund for me. Uh, we need your backing. We need your support. So uh, if you flirt with it, please, a dollar, $5 a month is all we ask. And yes, uh, I know I am well behind on getting some of the, um, the Patreon perks out. Uh, that's going to get sorted soon enough. Uh, and indeed, there's there's some ideas and stuff I want to bounce around with everybody. And so look for the irregular to start back up as kind of a notepad uh, podcast. But we've got a few other things bubbling right now because now that we've got the bandwidth, uh, it's time for us to take this all into some exciting new directions. 
Okay, the sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Balthazar, Jan Bubman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry, and there will be another one joining them soon. Okay, this uh, was the least traditional episode of the podcast in terms of how we recorded it so far. Uh, and the recording turned out really well because Robin is a far better engineer than I am. <laughs> yes, the guest was acting as the engineer. Why? Because I was driving, that's why. Uh, and then when we got up into the hills, I just said, why, why not just stay consistent? So here we go. <laughs> So today's episode, uh, well, the recording of this episode is maybe the maybe the silliest, possibly the most dangerous thing we've ever done, and the first time where the guest is uh, operating and acting as our sound engineer. But that's because I implicitly trust Robin Arnott with our. Did I get that right, or did I? Get yeah, that's Robin Arnott. Good, I got it right. I just listened to you say it, and I'm like, don't don't screw it up, because of course, famously, I mess up names. Um, Robin's operating the audio equipment as he sits in the passenger side of the Honda as we're driving from one part of L.A. to another because it's E3 week and that's what you do during E3 week. So consider this our comedian in the car, comedians in cars getting coffee. Uh, and Robin, uh, I first met Robin um, at E3 years and years ago at the IndieCade booth. Uh, it was with Deep Sea. Yeah, that was uh, Deep Sea way back in the day. I was showing at the IndieCade. That was my... um. That really was the project that brought me, slammed me into the independent game scene and and was a huge career shift for me very quickly and unexpectedly that I'm very grateful for now. And that was, a, that was an audio-based video game. So it makes total sense that Robin's our audio engineer today. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I, I went back during Deep Sea, I was going to film school at NYU and I was training as an audio engineer. So for me right now, handling the microphone and going back, I'm like, I used to, I used to do boom operating. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I love boom operating. It's been years and years since. So I'm, I'm kind of like, oh wow, I still got it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you're a long way from a boom operator now. Now, now you you slammed into the independent game scene, and your arc has gone through. We we've touched base so many times over the years because you've arc you spent a long time and, and are still working on a piece called Sound Self, and that you know touches into kind of the almost into the consciousness hacking world, and that that which veers in. There was a whole ceremonial aspect to what you were doing there uh, at times, which which definitely kind of bleeds into our immersive world. And now, well, what are you doing now? I want you to say what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Um, well. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd, I'll tell the story of how I got here, just to connect these dots. Brilliant, and I'll drive the car. <laughs> so, back when you and I met when I was doing Deep Sea, I was, it was, that was a an installation piece that a person would wear a gas mask, and... Um, God, the gas mask, I remember the gas mask, now, this is, it, it's still a vivid memory, like, like being on the E3 floor. Sticking my sticking my head into a gas mask and not being able to see anything at a video game conference. Yeah, people really. Somebody fainted playing that game, and uh, it 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 was just a weird experience. I was I was interested in immersion, and I wanted to make the most immersive experience I could. And this was back, you know, NYU no quarter. This was part of the first no quarter, um, 
And I realized that I could use fear. I mean, most, most, many, many designers understand this. You can use fear as a shortcut to help people let go of their sensibilities and, and immerse themselves more deeply in whatever the fiction is. And so Deep Sea did that to the nth degree, locked you in a gas mask, blinded you, made it difficult for you to breathe. And it worked really well. And that, that actually really, I've always for a long, long time in my art been interested in consciousness. Uh, at, at first, that was from a um, a pretty, um, I think, secular perspective. But as I've dived more deeply into it with my personal meditation practice and so on, um, after Deep Sea, what was for me as a designer, an intellectual sequel to Deep Sea was Sound Self because I had succeeded in making this extremely immersive, terrifying experience. And then I had a oneness experience, an awakening experience, a, a, a religious experience, if you will, and um, realized like, can I no it actually like the whole thing it, to try to tell the story of how sound self came to me is is strange because I was sitting with deep sea and the surprising success of how effectively that worked and I was sitting with the the repercussions of my first oneness experience and um and this thing kind of just came to me that oh I could create a game that could help a person step into their own experience of stillness and um that was many years ago and and that's what I've been working on ever since. But as, as that project kind of came to an end of development and um, was, was clearly, you know, almost done, I got um, suddenly the realities of having to market something like that hit me, you know, like, yeah. like, how do you, this is a video game. And it clearly is a video game. It's a virtual reality video game. So we started developing it for VR. Um, as as soon as the Oculus announced its Kickstarter, and but there's yeah, I mean the first version of it I saw was was in your tool shed in Austin outside of South by Southwest, and there was like a cuddle puddle of pillows and a and it might have even been an SM58 dangling from the ceiling of the tool tool shed, and you were projecting it up, and then and then within within I guess like seven months. Uh, the cycle went through, and the next time I saw it was at GDC, and you were running around with one of the Oculus dev kits and shoving it on people's faces in in Moscone Center in the hallways. Yeah, yeah, you're you're bringing back a lot of memories for me. Gosh, it's been it's come such a long way, it's been such a long time, and and I think it is something so special, and and the, the question about how to reach people with it when I I think they're currently. And you're at the forefront of this with no proscenium. You know, we're seeing something emerge, a new way of engaging with media and entertainment that is more close to the heart and close to the soul. Um, but how to communicate that has been, um, because it's new, and because I think people are ready for something new, and people are like people are consciousness hacking is exploding. I mean, all over the place, we, people are really challenging the way they engage with media, the way they engage with with their own minds. Um, so it's it's a really potent moment. But but the reckoning of how this wasn't going to be simply release the game like you would any other independent game and and it'll find its audience and then move on you know it was like this is this has to be this is a part of a movement of changing what games are and can do and how we think about immersive entertainment and the only way to shepherd something like that is is to weave a story that com that that 
that tells the story of the movement that's happening right now, which mm. isn't just you know sound self, but is consciousness hacking and the uh, this second psychedelic renaissance and uh, the stuff that you're doing with no proscenium ties into it. You know, there's just like something happening, and I couldn't responsibly shepherd this into the world as a game designer. I had to kind of put on a businessman hat and um, start dressing differently, and and that's where this publishing company comes from. And and that was the thing that sort of like shocked me was I was at uh, there was an event I think grass fed was doing out here uh, and I was at it because uh, Cosmo Sharf of VRLA was was uh, helping to promote it and it was like it was one of those sort of like part of the coming out party for like legal cannabis uh, and there was a whole VR component at it and there were sound self was there I was like oh of course sound self was, is, is here and there was also a bunch of other VR games and experiences and they were all they were all this one company which was like the company's previous name uh, which I don't know if that's the thing you want to get into at all but but uh, it was there for a second under that name and I was like oh what is this and and one of the folks who was there said oh yeah and our, our CB, CEO Robin who made sound self and I was like wait what Robin's a CEO? What the hell is going on? So, Robin, you're a CEO. What the hell is going on? <laughs> what happened for me was my, you know, so so when you were getting to know me, I was a uh, bright pink hair, um, uh-huh. artsy, artsy kid, and... Um, Cuddle puddles in the back of a tool shed in Austin, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the story of what happened, there was, as I, I was coming to the end of this project, um, and then my, my sister died... And um, it was unexpected, and when a tragedy like that hits, it, I don't know, it, it really made me look at my life in a lot of different ways and recognize, like, see the ways that I was playing small and, mm. and see the ways that I was, um, I guess, like, holding on to, like, an artsy kid identity. And, and I just, like, woke up into something and realized, like, I got to take myself a lot more seriously because there's an opportunity here to, to help a lot of people and um, and it just moved through me. I mean, Chantel's here in the back of the car, and we started dating around that time, but you saw a lot of changes in me around that time. Do you remember what that was like? I think you were you had changed quite a bit before we met. But, yeah, but even since we met in the year that we've met, um, yeah, you, you are definitely... Well, I knew you the three years prior <laughs> to dating you when you had the pink hair and you were really artsy. Um, yeah, you're a lot different. You're a lot more mature. I think turning 32 helps. Yeah, so so there was, uh, I don't know, it's There's, just a your, lot. Your, your context shifted, but you had had all of these experiences. And I, I mean, not to like, I don't want to like, I don't want to get too much into the psychology here, but like, this is something really interesting is that you haven't abandoned everything you've been doing and everything you learned or that curiosity if anything you've you've kind of done the classical Campbellian thing of you've been out in you've been out in the wilderness and now you're taking what you've learned back into the society that birthed you yeah that 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 nails it you know like I I went from being kind of um you know, we say arty kid, but but there's a rebellious aspect to that now. And now I'm like, I look at American culture and I'm like, that this culture belongs to me. It's my responsibility to take care of it. Mind you, we are currently under the 101 overpass 
on Alvarado and on either side of us, of course, is a homeless encampment because these this is the condition of America, uh, particularly Los Angeles right now. So when we're talking about American culture, this is it. Like here we are at at the 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 nadir of it as we turn on to the 101 where we're we're headed up into the the hills in a little bit here. So we're going from we're going from Alvarado and a homeless encampment and we're going to be up we're going to be up uh, in the Hollywood Hills in a little bit here. Yeah, right under the Hollywood sign is where we're going. Yeah. It, for me, it it went I just I just couldn't function as a sort of rebel spirit anymore and I I it it's just like taking responsibility over the whole thing which is a spiritual development means asking who do I have to be to help and offer offer healing in the deepest way that I can which isn't going to look the same as what other people are you know it, it's not going to be part of somebody else's narrative and just recognizing like I'm here on the precipice of gaming technology and consciousness shifting and and I have an opportunity here to, to really put my put my head and my nuts on the line and, and, and help foster this thing into existence. And it's almost like I didn't even have a choice. Like once I saw it, it was just obvious what I had to do. And my and, and surprising things changed for me. Like overnight my sense of fashion immediately changed. And my the pink hair just didn't make sense to me anymore. I didn't even wait for it to grow out. I I, I dyed it back to brown. Um, so those sorts of, but they're not superficial things, you know, they're, they're like, who, who do I have to be right now to most adaptively serve and express what's trying to come through here? And, and what that is looks more like the CEO of a company than uh, an artist making a, um, a weird, surprising thing. Yeah, it was funny because like when I, when I saw you, when we, we met at the Whole Foods today, um, and I feel I feel on one hand I feel weird about like narrating like where we are and what we're doing, but also like context is important. And like I saw you and I was like, oh, it's Robin. And like, but there was also like a little bit of like, oh, oh, it's still Robin, but like, it's like, you know, it's a more conservatively dressed Robin. But at the same time, like you were saying, that's who you need to be to like slip in. I, I I'm instantly sitting thinking like, oh, he's in. He's got his Bruce Wayne suit on. But but underneath it all, there's there's still like, there's still Robin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like a costume. It's no. it's just a, a different. Ad, it's hard to describe. It's really. I'm I'm sure a lot of people, your listeners like have been through radical transformations, and there's nothing like a death of someone close to you to to trigger something like that. But um, yeah, I mean that that moment when you're facing it's one thing when you face that as a kid because when you fit when you when you face death whether you're like in like elementary school or even in high school like it'd be formative and, and and shape you in ways and it it destabilizes it destabilizes your your social world but it does it in a way that you haven't figured out who you are yet anyway and then it comes along into a life where you have pretty much figured out who you are and it just it strips away anything that's unnecessary like suddenly as you're facing that whether it's a death or like you know the 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 mortality of a parent and 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 watching all that stuff something that I'm kind of rolling through right now and just the things that felt like they mattered three months ago like don't they just don't you just know like there's no time for this anymore there's there's things that must be done and you got to go be the person you need to go be 
Yeah, you're you're just like you're you're narrating that part of my life. It, it sounds like you speak to this very intimately. I imagine you've been through something, or, or you say are going through something similar. Yeah, there's. I mean, like, there's most of the listeners know there's like stuff going on with my mom. Like she's alive. She's doing as well as she can under the conditions. But like, you know, three years ago was when I lost my one of my college friends slash housemate um, uh, to cancer, and I just completely spun that became a stripping down but even now like where where it's even more conscious and daily thing like the stripping down is is kind of amazing and it's daunting um i think a a key thing of it is that that clarity of focus all right we're we're doing a lot of psychological stuff here uh, on on the selves talk to me about what you're making because the aim here is games for change games for healing right so what what are you what are you brewing right now what have you been working on sure so um there's two things firstly there's the game there's sound self and secondly there's the company around it i'll I'll speak first to sound self because that's the simpler answer and it's the one i've been working on longer this is a game that uses your voice to redirect your attention from external phenomenon and directly into the silence at the core of your being. Um, and it may sound weird, you know, that's what meditation does, that's what psychedelics can do. And maybe it may sound weird to imagine that's what a video game can do. But it, the way, I mean, the way it occurs to me and the way it occurred to me when, when this experience kind of flashed into my head in the first place and I realized I could make it. Um, a little bit of, of context here. Um, when Generally, when you're making a game, you want to, like get something that tests tests the core mechanic of it um, like within a few weeks just to even test if it's if it's gonna work um, unless you're doing something like a first-person shooter you know the basic mechanic and you're just doing some aesthetic thing not to diminish that but but if you're if you're doing a new kind of game mechanic you want to test it soon so that you know it works sound self occurred to me it kind of just appeared to me fully formed months after my first psychedelic not psychedelic my first oneness experience and that mechanic is harmonizing your voice and letting the the music evolve with you and dance with you and having some visual component that's evolving with you and dancing with you as well and I had no reason to believe that it would work other than that it it just it just came to me in this sort of channeled fashion and it, it took six months of development of two people developing it before because it was so new and so different required such weird technology just to get to the place where we could test it. It took six months to get a build that we could even test if that basic idea worked or not. And, and it did work. It worked phenomenally well. Um, so that's the gist of it. It's this experience. You vocalize, you hum, and as you're doing that, you begin to lose a sense of being the person humming and singing and you begin to instead follow your voice deep into something and people come out of this experience pretty regularly um, having for a lot of people their first experience of of true silence in their lives mm. so that's that's the first I guess for Andromeda, and and you mentioned this is like the second name, and I just uh, heard from our lawyer last night that we may actually need to, to have a third name. So, <laughs> which is, oh boy, names, names are uh, names, like the absurdity. Just every name's been used, 
And then you want a name, and then you find out you can't use the name, and then you're like, but I have the URL. How can I not use the name? And I like it, and we made this really cool brand around it that, yeah, yeah, it's but it's it's just part of it, you know. Um, it's it's hard work to start a business. It's, it's such a million little things. Um, but uh, so the, the company is around, like I realized I wasn't the only, I felt very alone for a long time developing SoundSelf because I, I knew I was developing something special and I had a very intimate relationship with my programmer. Like he and I had this really dear understanding with one another of what we were building. And, um, but for the most part, like people would play it and they'd, they'd get it and they'd love it. But there, I didn't know of anybody else who was really approaching game design in this way that I was. And as the years went by, I found more and more people who um, are game designers by craft, but consciousness explorers in their heart and using their craft to explore consciousness and help other people either come into some sort of silence or explore some aspect of, of being a conscious being. And um, and Andromeda came emerged as a as a, a recognition that you know we all need to work together and we all need to kind of weave all these into a, a shared I don't want to say shared identity but a shared narrative at least so that people can understand because so many people are waking up into the the um, uh, the mystery and magnificence of of just being a conscious being and and I think a lot of these people are are ready for a more uh, more mysterious media and that's what Andromeda my company is about is finding the artists who are who are channeling and who are making this this stuff this interactive stuff that that helps you come into a deeper intimacy with yourself and well is that going to be in virtual reality is that going to be through a card game is that going to be an installation somewhere you know it doesn't matter we need a business unit who's helping this stuff come to market in whatever the most appropriate place is so that these artists can can just focus on channeling. And and that's what we're doing. Right now, we're using SoundSelf, which is um, my project for the last seven years, to, to build out an economic pipeline for transformative interactive experiences. And meanwhile, looking for and beginning relationships with other designers designing from this kind of mentality so that we could help them take advantage of and expand that pipeline we're building with SoundSelf. So it's not just going to be in virtual reality headsets. We're talking about float tanks. We're talking about um, installations and spas. Um, we're talking about community spaces because so much of the spiritual experience is about coming together in um, Sangha. Um, but so much of it is, is figuring it out and finding the allies because there are so many people working in this space that that like me we're feeling alone and now we're working together it's interesting it's like i was listening to um kent by interview doug rushkoff um so i'm like in the middle of listening to that interview right now i realized i thought I'd, i was listening so late that i thought i'd gotten through it i hadn't got about 25 minutes left and like rushkoff was i'm checking the map here make sure i know where i'm going we're hitting into hollywood land right now very um, different from under the bridge very different the the exact opposite um rolling up into Hollywood land. If you don't know what Hollywood land is, Google it. Um, we're, and, and sort of Rushkoff lamenting that the countercultures kind of disappeared now, like countercultures disappeared. Um, there's, there's kind of only the overculture and there's, there's a way in which 
I kind of see the the mutation as there's been an adaptation in order to survive. There's been an adaptation. Ledgewood. Here we go. Um, probably shouldn't have said that, but that's cool. Um, uh, there's been an adaptation to find not only find the others but then and that was always the in old injunction it's even the end of the team human book is find the others right that was the, always the counterculture injunction and it's a good injunction but there's a question of what do you do once you find them right like it's it's great and all that you know game recognizes game or weird recognizes weird but you know it's and it's great that everyone can kind of come together at certain you know, temporary autonomous zones for a period of time, but then everyone kind of goes on their separate way. And if we're going to change society, then we need to like have some static latching. There needs to be ways in which people are not just connecting with each other, but, but living and thriving and growing together. Um, and you know, one of the tools is a business. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most sustainable and effective tools is a business. I mean, I mean, you can do in, in your work, and we were just talking about this over breakfast, we see all the time, you know, really beautiful work and amazing minds being put to um, just creating beautiful spaces in the world, but, but they aren't institutionally supported, so they can't survive off of it. And so, like, what did you describe? Like, uh, can you say again how you described the, the state of the, um, the state of the, uh, uh, sorry, is that where we? That's not it. I'm so lost. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting close. Yeah, can you describe how how you described this morning? Because I thought it was so on point. The state of the immersive art or immersive installation economy. Well, I mean, one of the things I think I think this is what you're 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 hinting at, um, or what's what's getting sparked is, you know, there's we're trying to figure out a way to make this work sustainable for artists. And so that they that they don't have to either they get to make stuff for a while and then they have to go disappear into a mundane day job because they can't find a way to sustain it or they that it's a pure kind of Christopher Nolan esque one for me one for them and then they're 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 beholden to chasing a bunch of experiential marketing work to the point where they can't do the other stuff like it's fine when it's like oh i just did a big comic-con installation i didn't some some plenty of people i know are doing them but like i just did a big comic-con installation now i'm get to spend the next six months working on my killer show for one person at a time which 50 people will see right and this this balance particularly because the comic-con thing is going to be seen by a couple of thousand people and the other thing is going to be seen by 50 people can we move to a point where we're sustaining work so that someone doesn't necessarily have to take that experiential marketing gig, or if they do, they don't have to sacrifice everything they're doing and just purely chase that. And it's hard because there's rent and there's the dream of a mortgage uh, and there's, there's family expenses. You know, there's, there's only so long that an artist can work for the art alone and oh okay i know where we're going uh or wait am i is this blocked off this is weird it's it, people get lost up here all the time okay. but this looks familiar at least yeah i think i think this is where yeah it has to be we got to wait for this suburban to do what it's doing um 
you know, maybe I have to, I don't know, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to dare, dare to believe you, can. sorry, whoops, sorry, Transformer soundtrack, sorry, 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 everyone's like, no, we know you do that, Noah, I got a bad feeling about this, I um, this, I think this is the right place, I think it's the right way, but I, it might be only one way, we'll find out, we're going to have a lot of fun here, uh, it said no turnaround, so, anyway, joy to the world, um, yeah. Oh, here we are. We're on the, the, the big famous one. Oh, here's the turn. Oh, oh yeah. there's, there's my friends. Oh, there are your friends. Oh, we found your friends. All right. How do we, how do we get in here now? So this part might get edited out. Um, <laughs> where are we, where, what are we going to do now? I think you can just, um, we'll park past that gate um, eventually. Okay. So once that lift gets out of the way, we'll. Hey, John. Well, we can just talk in here for a little bit longer. Yeah. This, this car behind us is like wanting us to like, yeah, what do you want me to do, buddy? Where are you going? Yeah. No, the gate remains closed at all times. Oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Okay. Um, we, were, we were talking about um, the phenomenon, of, you know, trying to support your art. And, and as you get older, it gets harder. Yeah. Um, so... Hopefully this will edit together some way because we've got to cut part of that. Anyway, at some point I was rambling about sustainability and the, the summation of it is I don't want to see the most productively creative years of some really inspiring and exciting voices uh, get just fully engaged to make experiential ads and then for them to disappear without having made their own mark on the world and their own statement. Uh, that would be not so great, uh, which is an underrated statement. Like that would be absolutely horrible. It's okay. It's great if they're getting paid and if they're finding ways to do the thing, that's wonderful. But if all they get to do is the experiential marketing, then as a culture uh, of, of immersive art, uh, we've failed them. Um, that's aside from like, and, and that's as a subculture. And and not only failed them, but I think we've you know, these are are people who have a certain genius coming into the world, and um, to the best degree possible, we want to institutionally support that genius creating what it wants to create. Yeah, well, because hopefully, when we see that genius, what we're seeing is someone is giving voice to a current that is underneath a lot more than just themselves. And as they give that voice and they're given space to speak, the people who hear it respond and that amplifies. Almost like think about um, in Occupy, the, the, the human microphone, right? Like that, which is sort of this, this artifact of Occupy that went away, this idea that someone's standing and instead of getting a bullhorn out, the, the next wave of people would repeat and the next wave of people would repeat. And you could amplify one person's voice out to a few hundred people without them having to shout because people were acting as a, 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 
physical distributed network and repeating people's statements and carrying it forward. And that's something that was such like, a, oh my God, do you know what they're doing in Zuccotti Park? And of course, that moment has passed us. But that's very much what culture is. And, and you're not, and when you're speaking those person's words, you're giving them support, but you're, you're choosing to speak them because it resonates with you and your own resonance picks up with it. I feel like we should do something logistical here for a second. Sure, let's yeah. pause. Yeah. We've shift modes, we're out of the car, now we're on Ron Lyle's balcony. Uh, a little context, Lyle is a member of our team who's, uh, I talked about how we're distributing this stuff not only to like you know the oculus store and but but there's there's so many opportunities for this kind of interactive content outside of mainstream distribution mechanisms so i'm thinking about float tanks in particular so lyle is our guy who's just mastering that space could talk oops sorry i hit the microphone it's super professional me this is why i'm having you handle it because you're actually better at this than i am um Talk to me uh, and talk to us about the float tank thing. Cause like I've done float tank and my brain instantly starts to fill in like what it could be like, but like, what are you envisioning here? And is it specifically for sound self or for some other experiences? There's a couple of experiences that we're, we're one is sound self, but there's another one that we're currently in negotiation with that we think will fit really nicely into float tanks. And, and so what you'd have is either a projector or some light or something in a float tank that's responding to your body in some way so that, um, because I know I, I don't want to go too much into detail with this stuff because we're it's just it's it's just kind of beginning to um, figure out itself what it is. So I don't want to I don't yeah. want to like put anything down in public or what it, it just just I don't want to jinx it or anything. But yeah. but just to give you a sense of the kinds of spaces we're exploring, it's like you might go into a float tank, you might go into a spa somewhere you're going with a with the idea of relaxing and healing in mind. Excuse me. You all right? Yeah, yeah, just burping. Okay. <laughs> uh, that Whole Foods. Yeah. And um, somewhere you're going with relaxing and healing in mind, and uh, y- instead of just engaging with a, uh, a therapy like flotation or massage or whatever, you'll have some sort of interactive experience that can set you into a receptive mood. Yeah. Or, or engaging more aspects of engaging more aspects of the sensorium, right? So, like, not just the visceral feeling of being in a float tank, but, but like, even I imagine just like having like sound stuff in there because it's responding to your respiration, um, it's responding to the sounds you're making. You're you're creating more feedback loops. You're easing people in because, I mean, not everyone can drop into a float tank and then like find themselves released. And this is sort of and where, where sort of the consciousness hacking of what you guys are doing comes into it is, you know, it, I mean, is it kind of like a little cheat code? Maybe a little bit. But then you think about something like mandalas or sand painting and how there's always been an aspect in spiritual questing and in meditative practices of not just trying to hit zazen and blank yourself out or do like the the hardcore um you know kind of chaos magic-y like i'm gonna shut every thought down and like aggressively push down on the thoughts to create like a little little nitroglycerin (laughs) 
soul, which can be super effective, by the way. Um, but other pathways that recognize that we're not just a, 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 a we're not just a brain in a tank somewhere. Like yeah, the the embodied stuff in particular. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it 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 it's like, well, why not engage with more aspects and not just one? And and you mentioned. Oh, so sitting in zazen or 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 what have you, a lot of these practices, even a float tank, which is a pretty accessible technology, uh, it takes your first three hours in a float tank are just your body getting used to it. You, your first three hours in a float tank ever, you're not really getting any benefits from it because it's so novel to your mind. Um, oh, oh yeah, we're good. It's just so novel to your mind. So um, it's only after you've you've done it for three hours that you start to be able to sink into it. Them's my old sound engineer ears. <laughs> the, boom mic, the boom mic operator deep inside you is like, helicopter, yeah, got to yeah, pause. Yeah. Hold, hold for sound. <laughs> we, are, we are just underneath the Hollywood sign. Like, this is probably the best view I've ever had of the Hollywood sign, full stop. Yeah, it's pretty gorgeous. Yeah. You weren't kidding. You were saying we were going to underneath the Hollywood sign. I was like, okay, metaphor. He's like, it's a metaphor. It's not a metaphor, right? And it is kind of funky. We were just, we were, took us 20 minutes from a homeless encampment to the Hollywood sign, right? Like that's, and that's the state of, of the world. Oh, and there's, there's the crucifix. So the, between the crucifix and the Hollywood sign, that's, that's from the Florence and the Machine song right there. So, so wherever, wherever that song came from was somewhere just, just west of where we are right now. Yeah, we can probably see it. Yeah, and there's a yurt. Look, I can see a yurt. Okay, the helicopter's passed. We've given everyone the the visual orientation. Um, so you're here at E3, and are are we launch mode? Like, what's going on? You guys threw a party the other night. So. Like, or, or I'll tell you what. Let me go back and just finish the thought, sure. um, which is just these. So with float tanks, it's three hours in a float tank before it even begins to work right, with right, you. Right. With certain styles of sitting meditation, like um, vipassana. Uh, which is body scanning. It mm -hmm. takes about 35 hours of body scanning before you actually start to get the benefits of it. Um, and this is true of, this is kind of the unfortunate and difficult truth of so many stillness and contemplative practices is that they all have a warm-up period in which it's um, at best frustrating and most of the time, not only frustrating, but not actually doing you any good, just getting you used to it. Yeah. I mean, from my own experience of it, there's also when you stop the practice for whatever reason, by choice, by accident, by exhaustion, happenstance, chaos coming in and upturning your life, getting back on, it, it, it almost feels harder then it's not like, oh, it's, it's, it's never getting back on the bicycle. It's like, because it's a matter of a, a kind of a flow state thing. And a discipline, too. A discipline, like, it, it wants even more out of you to, to, there's a bigger tax to pay to get back on. That isn't to say that the benefits aren't worth paying that tax, but it will demand more from you. I can't tell you how many times I've started a yoga practice. And it seems like every time I travel for business, I have to start my yoga practice again. Yeah, I mean, uh, a work trip is the single most disruptive thing to uh, a, a yogic or a magical practice you could possibly have because suddenly, yeah, <laughs> let's just say I'm very familiar with that scenario. <laughs> 
So a big part of what, what I think is important about these technologies is that, you know, we talked about the discipline. They take, they, they, they make, they replace the disciplinary part of it, the part that requires you just fucking sit in silence while it hurts for a little while with something that's fun and, and intrinsically joyful. Can we examine that for a second, though? Because I, I can hear a thousand, thousand souls crying out, but the discipline's the point. Like, is 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 the shortcut, is it a shortcut, number one, and then is it maybe missing the point because you're then reliant on the tool and not just on the self or, or, and I, and I'm sure without a doubt you've been reckoning with this yourself. Yeah. That's like right there. That is the, that is the question that is at the core of consciousness hacking. So you go to like uh, the awakened future summit, which we just had, or any consciousness hacking gathering, like that question is at the core. Um, some interesting news is that some of the people who are, um, who have perhaps spent m more time and life energy than anyone else on these contemplative practices have come to a particular conclusion about it. And so the Dalai Lama is very much in favor of shortcuts. Mm. The, the Dalai Lama says, look, if it helps people reach peace, then yeah, it helps them reach peace. Um, it's, it's often hard to argue with the Dalai Lama. And in that particular case, that's, that's a really good point. And, and, but there is something to be said for, um, okay, so like yes, there is a value in discipline and in cultivating discipline. The cultivation of discipline is what allows us to have authorship over our lives. But but part of the cultivation of discipline is um, relaying and relating with yourself as as a flawed being that needs help along the way. And if you if you're taking up something because it's fun and it's joyful. And uh, and incidentally, it also helps you, you know, find a deeper uh, sense of purpose or stillness or whatever it is. Then that's that's just a, a good. Now, if that becomes a um, if that becomes just like a hobby, then great. If that becomes a a way into a deeper life, then great. I think the only uh, thing that you want to avoid is it becoming a crutch and your your only means of accessing something like as almost as though like if your only way of of hearing the divine is through a high dose of lsd or something um which isn't to say that a high dose of lsd can't be valuable either as a tool for picking up the phone um there's this great saying um when you hear the message put down the phone but you have to pick up the phone first so either as a tool for picking up the phone or honestly as a um as a, as a joy in and of itself. Um, there's nothing wrong with either of those. It's, it's just when something becomes a crutch that I think it's a problem. I think, I think of, you know, in, in my own, it often feels like the goal of my own practice, which is at a very light part of the curve right now, uh, although I'm finding myself finding flow states while playing Beat Saber, of all things, um, and, and, and I feel like the goal is to be able to gear shift more cleanly and to sort of like sidestep into that mode of consciousness. And that the more time I spend in that mode, the easier the shift becomes that that indeed is what that 35 hours of body scan that, that every day, I mean the, the height of my practice was an hour a day of, you know, kind of hard push 
um, you know, blanking my mind, um, and even like blanking my mind, not blinking. Like it was, it was the hardcore kind of edgy chaos magic version of, of approaching it. of just like push, 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 like trying to break the, the, the noise and once in a while touching on the quietness. Uh, and then I found softer practices in, in, in the meantime or in, in the sense. And this, this idea that you were freed up in funny thing being that oftentimes those states of consciousness, you know, for me were very akin to when I was doing improv every morning and right. Right. And just pure play and completely out of my own way and just responding to the, taking what the environment gave me and iterating on it and folding it back. That's so, per- and, the, and, and it reminds me like something that we, these more serious practices, there is just as much of a, um, uh, like an error or a, a crutch in the seriousness of those serious practices is, as there can be in the uh, sort of silliness of. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, there, there's nothing less sacred about, about improv than about a sitting meditation. Yeah, there's, and, and that playfulness, uh, I mean, you think from a mythological perspective, like, you know, who are the figures that are often, well, look, the fool is the zero card in the tarot, quickly followed by the magus, right? Zero, then one, the two sides of the coin, the fool and the magus. Um, and think of all the trickster figures in mythology uh, who, or, or the, the figures uh, who take people across the transom in mythology? Who often are are the the number one magical instructor? You know, they they're it's Mercury, it's Coyote, it's these trickster figures, uh, and and that's a sense of play, and almost it's like asking us to go back to the essential. Go and yeah, not only a sense of play, but also a like what these figures do is they they poke at they poke at seriousness. So as soon as either something or someone or some way of being seems to begin to take itself really serious, so it becomes rigid, it it invites that trickster energy to poke at it and say, yeah. hey. Although I'll also say that the, the wackiest thing I ever see is when the trickster stance becomes itself rigid. Like yeah. people people who are obsessed with the prankster thing, like it's like they, they don't get past it, right? It's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is just, uh, there's just too many comic books and you know, being you're not seeing Noah right now, but he's rubbing his face. Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm like this. This is like I gotta burrow into myself like I was a cat. Um, uh, maybe this is just too much of my confirmation bias from when I was younger, but it's always felt to me like there's the value is being able to pick the needle up off the record and know that there's a whole album and not get too identified with any particular role or any particular mode of being. And that if you can do that, you have liberation. And if you can recognize that other people are, are, are trapped in a role or, or trapped in a con or, or maybe they're, they're in a context, they're on a different track than you are. And if you can tune yourself to the track, then you can hear the same song and maybe know what's going on, understand their rhythms. Uh, but again, never trying to get too identified with, with the, the part you're playing at the moment, which is something that very much someone with a BA in theater with a focus on acting would say, because those are the tools I have to understand the world. I think that's a great frame, though. And, and you know, we started this conversation talking about my transition from being sort of an, uh, uh, an arty 
20 something to to putting on the ceo hat and creating a business and there's something in what you're saying that super resonates with my it, it it's just like oh that role was no longer the most adaptive role for what i'm trying to do and now mm. i'm picking up this role and i don't imagine i'll wear this role forever um it's a fun role right now <laughs> you're playing it very well like thank you like you know i, I gotta i gotta say you're playing very well um okay so we, we we've delved into the, the, the practice side of it but yeah business time what what are you laying out here? What's brought you to E3 in particular? Because E3 is the big show. I mean, even even with like Sony bailing and a few other things, like there's still there's still no more concentrated place in North America, at least, for electronic entertainment to be displayed. And while that's often thought of as strictly video games, um, that that there seems to be some shift going on. There's always been aspects of E3 that wasn't purely that. So, what are you guys doing here exactly? We're here really for one reason. Um, we're not going to be here for E3 itself. Mm -hmm. We were we were just here for an opening party, and um, Mike Wilson, who's my mentor and uh, is on our uh, advisory board and a close friend of mine, and and a real big reason for how my journey in this sphere took off. He's uh, his company Devolver just had its its tenth anniversary. Now you almost probably couldn't imagine a use of gaming technology like more different from say say Sound Self on the one hand and like Hotline Miami, which is a Devolver game on the other. You know, like Devolver. But, but Hotline Minneapolis is right in the middle. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you see that last night? They had I don't know if you saw this, but in their in Devolver's um, uh, press conference, they were like a Hotline Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it was Milwaukee, that's right, because they did a bootleg. Like, they've done, like, knockoff versions of their... Devolver, the only company that will make knockoff versions of their own games and then bootleg them out to everybody. Uh, Luftrauser 6, I think, was one was, of them. Oh, no, I, no it, had a, it had a misspelling in the name is what it was. There was a typo. Uh, and that... Yeah, Devolver's... Devolver... Oh, my God, Devolver's a fascinating, fascinating company. I think I... Ten years in now. Ten years in. Oh, my God, yeah. They're, they're fantastic. They are fantastic. And uh, so you, you but so uh, on the one hand, you almost, it's hard to see these two together. But um, on the other hand, like, firstly, I love video games. And, and I'm making these not really violent video game explorations of consciousness. But as a gamer, like the games that I play when I'm at home, I don't get a lot of time to play video games these days. But when I do play games, it's mostly like XCOM 2, which is a game about like, big men carrying giant guns mostly and killing aliens um so i love that stuff and i don't ever want to like like oh this is an evolution of the it's better than it. it's just a, a different face of it um but it's like to me devolver feels like our our older brother our, our big brother publisher and and Punk i'm rock over older brother who's like defending like the weird burning man kid brother yeah totally yeah. totally and and Mike has been such a a mentor to me in um, in in helping me um, grow into this role that's that's so new for me and that he's he's kind of a a, a master of I mean what Devolver's done over the last ten years is um, I think nothing short of of transforming the independent game space. Oh, without question. I mean, when they f they first started bubbling, and I think. I gotta train us, but I think it, I think it was I think I had lunch with Mike when, that time I visited you, 
uh, and visit everybody out in in Austin. I think I think it, we'd be remiss not to mention that Devolver's based in Austin, that you're based in Austin, and that so much of this culture of Devolver indie games in the indie game space and what you're doing is rooted in Austin's brand of weirdness and how there's become this safe haven, but also that Austin traces its roots in the game space back to origin which was you know lord british with ultima and richard garriott and um you know uh, freaking wing commander being made there and just generations of like like two generations now of serious video game being development being done at a corporate level and then in the shadows of that much the way that like often in the corpse of it often in the corpse of it yeah like like as as things were like gasping out and dying and like people like probably doing things off the books that they maybe shouldn't have been doing no one here um but just uh you know creating that fertile ground for uh indie games and how and those indie games could get really weird or really narrative and that devolver doesn't necessarily have a bunch of people who are developing in austin but takes that ethos and has has created a home for those types of weird games because that's the culture of austin in the same way that santa fe gave birth to meow wolf in the same way that the bay area's mix of the counterculture scene mixed with silicon valley money gave birth to burning man like these these things happen in places with identities and that this is very much part of Austin's contribution to this current in our culture. Yeah, Austin, our our um, slogan in Austin is keep Austin weird. Yeah. And uh, so we're seeing something being born in Austin right now, which is uh, Silicon Valley. Um, I was about to say I love visiting Silicon Valley, but that's a lie. Um, <laughs> I have to visit Silicon Valley sometimes, and there are things I like about it. Um, but there's uh, like that that spirit that birthed Burning Man, um, like that. There is just such a, a beautiful something that happened there. Um, but then it, it feels like in recent years, and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. It's like something's gotten a little corrupted along the path. Yeah, I mean, I'm from the Bay Area, and I, I mean, it's just it's just the the sheer disconnect that that much wealth creates. Um, and uh, it happens at a totally different scale, right? Like it, much in the same way that like a tragedy will, will shape your consciousness and, and, and kind of change what you think is important. You get, you get, you know, more money, more problems is true. And you get to the point where you've got so much where, isn't it weird that like Silicon Valley is like San Francisco is the place where, People are solving so many of the world's problems right now through brands and what have you. And yet the concentration of all of this problem solving has created so many like problems in the space. They've created visceral problems because they're trying to solve intellectual problems without without connecting them. I mean, Google's focus is on... Noah's tapping his heart right now. when he, he's, he's tapping his head and saying intellectual problems in his heart and, say, and saying connecting them. Google's focus is on creating an AI that will solve all the world's problems, but um, they don't. They don't. But ironically enough, then they go and create an AI, and, and they they sell an AI. And what it is is they just outsource a call center to like Manila, so that people can like order their DoorDash by saying like, "Hey Google, uh, could you send me some pot stickers?" And you think it's a computer, but it's actually you know someone in another country 
making a phone call to your local takeout place, adding layers of complexity to something that used to be your relationship, like creating an intermediary step, which is just vastly ridiculous when what we're supposed to be doing, we, 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 it could instead be connecting us. This technology should be connecting us. Instead, it's, it's moving us away from each other. It's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about immersive. Thank God we had this conversation today. Um, is because inherently it's about connecting us. It's, it's, it's to go back to Yoda. It's like where you are, hmm, what you are doing, hmm. And just watch the Silicon Valley companies um, be compelled by the necessities of the market forces to make more money, make more money, make more money at any cost. And the particular flavor of venture capital in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and, and to try and offload all the work to algorithms and to try and pretend that people aren't part of it just feels like it misses the point of what technology is supposed to be. Technology is, by its inherent nature, an extension of ourselves. It's tools we use to shape the world. And to try and just say, oh, let's just trust the tools. No, tools are stupid. They need to be stupid. They're always going to be stupid. They do what we tell them to do. God forbid Skynet does wake up. It'll do exactly what James Cameron said. It'll look at us and say, whoa, this is not efficient. Get rid of this virus and move us on, you know? Um, and, and, and that's that's the wacky you know version of it but i think there's plenty of technologists who that's why they get nervous about it because they look at the behavior of human beings and say yeah any rational system would look at what's been made right now and be like no no this is this is this is unsustainable which is why i mean and something that i think is happening now we're moving into ken wilber would would describe uh, for those of you who don't know ken wilber is a um psychologist founder i think the founder of of integral psychology That's fascinating character who's who's created a really fascinating model of of psychology and and ontology yeah, he has a, he has what he calls a theory of everything he's got this uh for all qual four quadrant system so he's got he's he's very much a systematic thinker and has synthesized a framework for uh, interpreting reality itself. Yeah, I find his I find his work really helpful to me, in not only in my personal development, but in how I relate to the world. And something important to understand is that there is a level of psychological development and understanding of the world that moves beyond rationality. And, and our business systems and the way we fund those business systems has to move into a post-rational space. Otherwise, you know, the, the sort of logical end of if rationalism is the beyond and end all, then the logical end of that, the rational end of that, is kind of a Skynet sort of situation. Before I, before I uh, read Ken Wilber, there was a book I came across in the late '90s called uh, the, I think it was the McGlobalization of something or other, McDonaldization of the globe or something along those lines. But it posited that uh, what McDonald's represented, that the, the, the real problem was what the author called the irrationality of rationalization beautiful and pointed to pointed to things like the development of the subdivision right uh and, and industrial processes and particularly stuff around food service or, or things like the microwave and this idea that you know rationality would bring us these ways to do things in a, in a way that was faster and more efficient but because it was creating ways are faster and more efficient, it created a wave of impatience. It was no longer good enough that a hamburger took us three minutes to get. We wanted it 
instantly. Just, you know, we got things faster and it created less, made us less patient. Instead of freeing us up to enjoy our free time because the tools were making things easier, we just wanted more and faster and more and faster. And that this is, this is every single process, right? Think about the way you relate to social media. Think about the way you relate to your text messages and how people expect you to be there right then and there. And yet we used to have the luxury of, you know, you know, back in the 1800s, like a letter might take a very long time to get to somebody. And then you would have time to contemplate the response. You'd have time to kind of like really think about, you know, who, what is this going to do to me? This, 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 this response I'm giving to somebody, what can I actually give them? Instead now it's like, we want it instantaneously. And you lose the beat, you lose your own cadence. And... It's it's so funny to me that like what we're collectively drawn to as as a this, this emerging you know creative community is to creating bubbles of space and time where people can get back to that more natural cadence to like be in the moment and hopefully hopefully go full spectrum and not just be like oh here's a piece of text I must respond to but it's like oh someone's saying something and their body language is this way and like. The, the what's the, the space I'm set up around, you know, even if I'm not conscious of what these buildings are, are saying, like there's there's a purpose to the design uh, that's asking me to 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 uh, think about the context in which I'm standing, even if it's not a conscious way of thinking. Right. You know, I'm put into a context and I'm responding you know, I hate to say authentic because it's like a branding term, but like I'm, I'm responding. Isn't that funny though? God, I know. Immerse is a branding third. Authentic's a branding term. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm over the fact that the language will get co-opted and I'm just soldiering on because sooner or later they'll get bored of it. They'll move on to the next thing. Right. What was it you said? Uh, like um, now Microsoft, one of their branding terms is what is it? <laughs> What's that uh, let's skip that part again. But like, I was just, I will say this much. I was watching the my, the Xbox presser last night, something I still watch because I still own an Xbox and I'm still theoretically excited about console video games because I wish I had the time to play console video games. So I download a lot and then go, when am I going to play that? I don't know when. Um, and I just noticed that uh, I, I am aware of the fact that Empower is uh, part of Microsoft's mission statement. And I was I became conscious of the fact that the, the executives were, were leaning on the term Empower. And you know what? I gotta say, like I'm actually enjoying, uh, and just new disclosure, like I'm I'm doing some side work, um, some some writing work, uh, occasionally for them these days. Nothing that impacts the space directly. Uh, if it was, I would flag like, hey, I wrote copy for this thing. Uh, n- literally stuff that's that's just in the enterprise sector, you know. But it's it's fascinating, even the way they're the way they're they're changing the way they think about reality, and. And some of the executives clearly embody it and clearly understand it. I think Satya Nadella in particular, like, isn't just talking about the goal being to empower everyone on the planet. I think Satya actually believes it. And that's why you see the shift in what, a lot of what they're doing. But, like, plenty... In, in Ken Wilber speak, would you say that's a shift from orange to green? Oh, man. If we're talking, we're talking uh, spiral dynamics here. Um, uh, n- you know what? The problem is, is that as a generally as a culture, we're stuck in green, mean green meme, and we need to move on into like the transpersonal stuff. So I want to, I want to take a, um, take <laughs> this as an opportunity are, to are like, oh my god, what's happening now? There's like, there's five listeners of the podcast who are like, oh, Noah and Robin are in it, and everyone else is like, what show am I listening to? <laughs> 
so I'm just going to um, uh, sum up some of this uh, green meme stuff that we're talking about and then tie it back to, because we were talking about San Francisco. Can we do and this Austin. in five minutes? <laughs> Can definitely do this in five minutes. Right, so um, the way integral spiral dynamics talks about it, we have these discrete stages of psychological development. Orange, and sociological development as well. They, they, they match up. Right. So orange, the orange meme would be, uh, rationalism and nationalism too, if memory serves. Orange is it yellow or orange? Amber would be more more nationalism. Okay. So that's yellow. Yeah. Um, but uh, rationalism, scientism, just the ability capitalism, to capitalism. That's what it is. It's capitalism at the, that stage beyond the market. Right. The market is the focus. Neoliberalism also. Right. Then we have green, which uh, is is uh, sort of the the dominant cutting edge in our culture right now, which is postmodernism, boomerism, uh, environmentalism. Um, and, and, and fairly self-reflexive, but gets, gets stuck in the self-reflexive because postmodernism kind of uh, rejects hierarchy uh, for heterarchy to a fault, yeah. right? Like, as, as a matter of course, and like... can be hard to get decisions made. Right, and no one's pain is better than anyone else's pain and all this other stuff, which... which sort of a conflate... Mm, this is what it does. Ooh, maybe I'm finally realizing something. It conflates... The personal with the sociological. It conflates something like my pain as a white male is no different from your pain as a black woman. Eh, wrong, because there's these other dimensions to it, right? It strips away the, um, the, the, the narrative and lives only in the moment in this kind of like soup and it's everyone kind yeah, of yeah the soup sort of reality where where and you get a lot of this it's that kind of level of consciousness where like we're finally beginning to break down definitions and ask what does it really mean which is great and good and necessary but then you get into just like what does anything really mean and you can't make decisions and it's and and so there, there's a, and every every single stage of development has its shadow. I think the reason we're not bothering to talk about the orange stage of development shadow is because it's so obvious. And right. All. And, and then beyond those, the transpersonal ones, which have different colors. Teal is the next one. They start, they start retrieving elements of the earlier stages and melding them with what's gone before it's like the, the so we could say what's the what's the gold of nationalism that would could be useful here what's the gold of rationalism what's even the gold of autocratic decision making yeah and and making sure that the shadow gets put where it belongs but the thing that's functionally good carries forward and in many ways those stages are mildly theoretical and well, integral's not uh, the yeah. teal stage is very very established. Yeah, and it's it it but it can be hard to see. The flip side to it is like, you know, there's less of it in the world the higher up the spiral you go. And I think something particularly effective for thinking about spiral dynamics, and maybe the most useful part of the tool is that it's a way of seeing hierarchy as as holarchy and the idea that everything is is a whole on both a whole and a part so as an individual i am a whole individual but i'm also part of a culture part of a society i am a whole on um i think i think that um so just to give an image to that being a whole on um you know you've got the amber stage of your personality which is a whole personality that's contained within a larger part of your personality an orange stage and so on right um, which is why it's it's interesting and value like I can relate to the 
little autocratic four-year-old in me who sometimes has something really valuable to say and yeah. sometimes just wants to make it all about him. Well, and, and the idea is that the, the lower on the spiral you are, the more fundamental things are. Yeah. And the higher up you go, the more significant. Well, the idea being significant is that an expression at the level of teal... The more subtle. Right? Contains the multitudes before it. Right. So like I want to I want to take us there. There is somewhere I want to take us because we could go into to a deep spiral. Go. To go. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. So talking about Silicon Valley, it seems to me like like Silicon Valley is sort of a conversation between orange consciousness and green consciousness and teal consciousness and everything. Oh, yeah. Everything about it is. A, oh, keep going. But I have something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. So bookmark that. Bring it up. What I something that's really interesting in Austin that's happening and it's even baked into the way we do funding and then VC, excuse me, yeah, even baked into the way we do funding in VC is it's it's kind of a conversation between um, teal consciousness and turquoise consciousness. Mm. So like I'm talking about to my my investors and you know we meditate together before we do any business and and we're we're listening to to things beyond our own limited personalities and consciousness to make decisions together and and so. It, it really is like we were talking about Austin versus San Francisco and so on earlier. Like Austin really is a like a, there's so much beautiful stuff emerging because we have this business environment that is that that comes out of something that at least I've never seen before. Mm. It's just a very different attitude to business. I mean, one that reminds me more of what the Bay Area felt like 20, 25 years ago. Shout out to the Bay Area in the 90s Two when you said that it's the conversation between uh, orange, green, and teal, I, 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 that clicked for me, but weirdly enough, where orange is driving the conversation. Mm. So instead of it being rooted in, you would think that in a, in a three-way conversation, in a, in, a, in a hierarchy of being, or even this holarchy of being, that the... Th- the linchpin between two modes of being would be where the conversation was rooted, but it isn't. It's rooted back. So that's part of the literally imbalanced. Like, think of a seesaw. Think of a teeter-totter. And the balance point should be in this green, environmental, postmodern, that sort of neurotic, like, but what does it mean? But instead, it's tilted so that the teals up here is this aspirational. The pivot point is that existentialism almost using all this. What does any of this mean? What, what, what does any of this internet stuff mean anyway? Like, like people can say whatever they want. Like, like what does it matter? What does it mean? It's, it's all just like, eh, it's all just the soup, but it's all being driven by the money. It's all being driven by the market. And, and, and even though it sounds maybe more like a nightmare to like move the center of gravity of the consciousness into that existential hellscape that is postmodernism but but if the the dynamic if if the if the arc of history uh per the integral model uh holds that's healthier than but how can we make a buck off this robin how can we monetize i'm glad you have an existential crisis but how can i monetize that (laughs) that's as a you know we talk about the green meme and i'm like i see aspects of it's just so frustrating sometimes you know um but it, uh, speaking culturally Kent Bai is going to love this episode by the way hi Kent <laughs> <laughs> um it is y- you know we are dominantly our culture american culture is dominantly orange um all of our systems are orange systems 
seemingly regressing back to yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really curious about like like assuming assuming there's like some like, looking at the whole uh, culture as a body, mm-hmm. and assume like like I like to look at that and assume there's something wise going on that I don't understand. Um, just saying that doesn't mean I can understand it and explain it, but it is interesting. You know, you see a regression back to amber consciousness and you're like, like, what are you, you know, we do this. We, we regress back to our childhood for minutes and it's often it's to do some healing there or something. Yeah. I'm just pulling this out of my ass right or now. Or for me shooting things in Halo. So yeah, so, <laughs> Halo, perfect amber, mm, beautiful amber. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, there's, uh, there is, man. There's just so much energetic movement happening. As like, it seems like so many people are transitioning their states of consciousness, either from orange to green, from green to teal. Uh, I think we're beginning to see a little bit of turquoise leadership. Turquoise, by the way, I haven't mentioned this for people, is uh, transpersonal. It's where uh, we sort of begin to relate to um, something beyond our um, human body and uh, kind of feel our soul, feel mm-hmm. something. Yeah. It's a little hard to describe. But. Well, I mean, for me, the, the part of the critical work of immersive is enabling perspective shift and enabling someone to like see through someone else's experience, right? It is a simulacra of the transpersonal experience and is that ability to identify with something larger than yourself. And I understand- That's interesting. So it's almost like, like immersive technology has an, uh, is like inherently tied to this psychological development, perhaps. I would hope so. I would hope that the the emergence of immersive technology and immersive practice has a teleological goal of of kind of bootstrapping us further up the spiral and and helping you in, in the sense that like kindergarten has a purpose of teaching you how to play with others, just physically play with others and to respect others' physical boundaries that that the, the, the aim up here is to help... Sorry, what's that project you described? Which project? Kendra's... No, kindergarten. Kindergarten, okay. It's kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> we've all been through that project. Um, uh, well, I mean, a few of us are feral, but um, that in immersive, it gets... In that same space, it creates a playground and a sandbox. We talk about sandbox immersives. It creates a sandbox in which we can explore boundaries again, explore what it means to 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 be other, to be each other, to be the self, to take on a different role, to understand your agency. Uh, my friend Jenny Weinblum, works, who's heading up the Mail with Denver project these days, she talks about immersive as rehearsal for resistance, and this idea that you know. Some some of the immersive pieces, particularly the horror ones, might put you into a, like an autocratic sort of mini state, and they want you to rebel. But how do you teach people to rebel when they live in a state that is slowly becoming autocratic again? And you find that people are more than willing to be coerced, right? And then questions are like, well, where does the artist's responsibility? If the goal, if the power is to teach you to rebel, and indeed, I often feel like the artists do want pushback. Although occasionally we'll find artists who just want the cult and they just want to to to, to answer on that. I will say that when I find artists who are very much just wanting the cult, like I stop even talking about their work, you know, like I cast them into, cast them into darkness. Um, You know, I think some people are are ready to go in there and like challenge those things. But like when you challenge those artists, like they refuse to be challenged. Whereas the artists who inherently want to be challenged or are grappling with themselves, they, they invite it, even if they don't necessarily know what to do with the challenging. And and this is 
we're, we're given the freedom to play with these boundaries in, in this space. And that's part of what the, the social aspect of immersive is. And then, then there's these, these internal things and, and issues around flow states. And I know that a lot of the, 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 the makers you're working with and work you're doing yourself is often rooted in trying to get people into flow state. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I think there's two things here, and I know you want to wrap up, there's, but there's flow state. Firstly, the flow state thing, because when you're in flow state, you are accessing wisdom beyond your memory and your mind and your uh, identification as Noah or whoever the hell you think you are. You know, you're just in it and receiving data. And, and um, I don't want to say receiving data. That's not quite right, but yeah, it's close enough. Yeah. So, but you're, you're surrendered. Um, so there's, there's two things. Firstly, there's the surrender of flow. And secondly, I think there's this thing that happens in immersion, immersion where you get people used to putting on a reality and taking it off again. Oh, I just snapped my fingers because I was agreeing. Yeah, yeah. And once, I mean, who knows what that's going to do for like the psychological baseline of our culture when people are just used to that. It's one of the things that actually is why I get more excited about VR than AR is because... Me too. Because the, the, the consciousness, like the awareness that you are putting the mask on it's ceremonial it's very ceremonial i'm going into the space i'm coming out of the space even when it's just even when it's tiny and minor and with ar this the idea like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna edit this in without your awareness right like that squicks me because if if you're if you've if you've been initiated cool man like summon up hallucinations uh, in your glasses any old time you want. You've been through the process. But if I'm just going to throw that on a developing mind, I mean, talk about talk about being able to like control people. Like yeah, especially when you can technology for control. When yeah, when you can, when you can overlay stuff on top of our yeah, I think I'm a lot less excited about AR than VR as well. But uh, uh, yeah, man, it's it's. There's so many ways this can go. I personally have a lot of faith because I've met a lot of people working in this space. And the ones who are thinking more responsibly mm. about the heart and soul of the people experiencing it just seem to be more effective than the ones who are thinking. Well, that's good. They, they, that's just what it seems like to me. Honestly, when I meet the ones that are sort of stuck in trying to, to like make money or extract something, they... They, they stick out like a sore thumb, you know? Mm. They and, I mean, some of them do seem to be like running at the head of the pack, but that's because the the, v, the VC money is easier for them to get because they're promising an ROI, and the ROI doesn't come, and then they disappear. And the one thing that I get scared about is like they disappear, and then, and then the market's like, oh, well, this is not practical at all, and the resources flow on to the next hot thing, when the truth is, is like, we haven't even begun. Yeah, no, we haven't. Um, I want to keep on going. Unfortunately, I do. I have to go. So, like, this has been a really juicy conversation. Yes, uh, and it's we've crossed Los Angeles to do this, which is also a very exciting thing. Um, how can people connect with what you're doing these days? Sure. So, if you go to enterandromeda.com, that's e n t e r a n d r o m e d a dot com, you'll uh, you'll find out about our stuff. Uh, you can sign up to our mailing list and we don't spam or anything like that. Also, all of our um, socials are Enter Andromeda. If you want to find out about SoundSelf, uh, soundself.com, S-O-U-N-D-S-E-L-F.com. And uh, we do some stuff on Facebook. <laughs> We're trying to <laughs> be a little more responsive on Facebook. Uh, now, now that I have a team and it's not just me, we're, uh, 
uh, slowly becoming a much better citizens of the of the social world so the social social media world uh, but yeah that, that's the best way just uh, go to our website look up our socials robin i look forward to the next time we get to do this and hopefully it'll be in your neck of the woods thank you man <laughs> Once again, I want to thank our guest, Robin Arnott, for being our sound engineer today. Oh, my God. Uh, it makes me it makes me wish we could have Robin record every episode. Um, mostly just makes me wish I had, like, an engineer, because that would be really rad. Uh, also, just like I said at the top of the show, like, my week didn't get better than that conversation. Um, I, um, it's, you know... Let's 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 stay in the headspace for just a quick second. Although I'm trying to recall the headspace because I didn't just listen to the episode. You know, I record the opening and then I record the, the back end. Don't listen to the whole thing again. Um, um, it's a dark time for the rebellion. Um, rebel forces. No, uh, that's Empire Strikes Back. And yet at the same time, yeah, that's sort of the mood these days. Um, you know, 2019's been uh, been been harsh in kind of cold ways. Uh, it felt like 2018 was like a hot year of just like hot trash heap fires everywhere. 19's just been a lot more surgical in its misery. Um, with that said, um, it's, it's got me thinking a lot about, you know, what matters and what we're doing here and kind of what the point of it all is. Um, which is, you know, having an existential crisis, well, not crisis, having, because it's not a crisis. Uh, I'm not, I'm not in this headspace where I'm like, what am I doing? Why are we doing this? It's a, it's, it's a little bit different. It's, it's what can we be doing better, right? Deep down, I know and I believe, no, not believe, beyond belief. I know that inside the core of the immersive approach to creating art, be that digital or physical, be that narrative or experiential, that there is something powerful. There is some powerful magic here. And there is the fact that immersive takes social contracts into consideration when it is crafting and being crafted. Now, that doesn't always happen. Not every piece does that. Not every piece has to do that in order to, you know, fall under our purview or even be good. But the potential is there. Unlike other mediums, it has a bias towards playing with those things. So even when you aren't intending to, you usually are, which is where, you know, some of the trouble comes from, uh, inside the art form but also where almost all of the grand potential of the art form comes as well. That's what keeps me from just wandering off and going, you know, fully into, you know, whatever the cause of the moment, whatever the, the hot front line is, is that culture is a team sport. And the part of culture that we're holding down is this weird frontier, but also it's it's sort of the fallback position. It's where we go. It's where we can bring people to when other things get out of hand and collapse. So there's a part of me that has this grand sense of urgency about what it is we're doing. 
um, even as I am deeply exhausted. So, um, and it's true. I am, I am deeply exhausted by the world right now. Um, and by both, you know, the personal stuff that's going on with me, Madre, uh, and all the way through just, you know, the, the endless grind and all the world about climate change and everything that's going on politically, um, just, just, you know, and there are parts where our world starts to cross over, you know, uh, this week in New York, uh, and I think possibly in a couple other places, uh, these installation pieces of, uh, kids in cages, um, started popping up, uh, one was outside the Barclays Center. And, um, I'm pretty sure there are people in our community that are part of that, that are making these pieces of work that are creating a visceral connection for folks to parts of our society, things that are going on that are being hidden, um, being obscured, uh, that not even, sometimes not even intentionally obscured. There's a lot of coverage about what's happening at the border. There's a, a lot of coverage if you know where to find it. And the issue we have in a very flat social media world is that uh, noise drowns out signal all the time. Uh, measured thought is obliterated by bullhorns. But the thing about experiential, the thing about immersive work is because it has a visceral component, a tangible component, a tactile component, uh, because of that, the signal strength is stronger, right? And it's almost like the defining trait for me for immersive is that the signal strength is stronger. If I'm at a piece and I don't feel that signal strength coming through, if it's very flat, if it's very performative, if it's perfunctory, um, if that signal strength isn't there, in my heart, I don't call that immersive. It's, it's, it's not. And that's a qualitative thing. But I don't think it's necessarily a qualitative thing that is completely in the eyes of the beholder. I think it's a practice. I think it's an intent. I think it is a method of creating work. I've been spending a lot more time inside the Oculus Quest of late, uh, which I've been truly enjoying. Uh, I've been like working up a sweat in the morning on Beat Saber. Beat Saber can be hard. Um, and even though there's a degree to which Beat Saber is weightless and light, uh, you know, we're not, you know, taking, you know, heavy objects and swirling them around. Um, it still moves you through. There's this physical, visceral component to that experience, to that game, um, that indeed can be transformative. I mean, I had an aerobic workout this morning, uh, in a video game and I was just having fun. Like I was not trying to have a workout. I was just trying to beat the freaking game. Um, and, and inevitably it kicked my butt. There's signal there in the form of just on the physical side, there is uh, there is an induction of flow state. There is a connection to the body. Um, it's so weird that something that, that kind of blocks out the other senses winds up grounding you in yourself. It's sort of the way that when you're in a fictional, um, immersive experience, you can find yourself a lot more in tune with your core self, almost if it's as if it's meditative. Um, you know, art's supposed to hold a mirror up to nature, but that mirror is often reflecting back ourselves. And 
when the work is doing the work. Ugh, what did I just say? You know what I'm saying? When the work is doing the work, it gives us the space to know ourselves better. And then the next step beyond that is to know each other better, the social aspects of it. All right. Expect more weird philosophical ranting, particularly uh, in the irregular. There's a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, about uh, some some essay stuff that I'm kind of working on that I'm going to kind of bounce some ideas on. So I'm going to drop a free form this week, and because uh, it's one I, I owe you guys, and two, uh, I just I need to work some stuff out. So I think I'll just work it out by blathering into a microphone because that's generally how I figure out what the hell it is I'm thinking in these moments, right? right now all right this has been a long episode let's do the credits i hope you've enjoyed it as much as i have there's i'm trying to look for the credits now and like there's emails coming in it's like why are there emails coming in okay here we go the sustaining backers of no persinium are mark balthazar jan budman lonnie hansen Ari Herstand, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. The music for No Presidium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. You can contact us at pitches at nopresidium.com if you have a show announcement. And I seriously encourage you, if you are making a show, please use that. Um, I know, I know, I know social media is right there to just fire things off on, but like email, things get lost in social media. Don't use use the tools that have signal. Don't get lost in the noise. At No Persinium is who we are on Twitter and on Facebook. At No underscore Persinium is who we are on Instagram. We're at nopersinium.com, which you can find all this stuff. And if you want to help us uh, explore strange new worlds and new civilizations, that's at Star Trek. No, um, that's at patreon.com slash nopersinium. I've been your host, Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>